Welcome everybody to Spirituality Adventures. This is a podcast where we are exploring many different topics and and talking about spirituality. This new series I'm doing is on health and spirituality. And I am so excited to have Dr. Rex Archer with us today. I actually met him or was introduced to him on a Zoom conference call just a couple of weeks ago with a Shepherds Helping Shepherds group that I'm a part of and was so impressed with his talk that I wanted to interview him on our podcast. So, Dr. Archer, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy, busy schedule and doing this podcast with me. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you, Fred. Um, There's nothing more dear to my heart than the interaction between spirituality, our various religious faith traditions, and public health. And a lot of people don't always see that there's so much overlap there, but uh, I, I'm enjoying this. Excellent. Excellent. Well, for, for the audience that doesn't know you or who you are, uh, give us just a brief background of, of where you're from, your, your education, and how you got into public health. So uh, I was born in Oklahoma City, but kicked out of there when I was a month old. Uh, actually, my mom and dad uh, met at K-State, and uh, uh, he was working in the oil fields. And uh, so when my mom got into her last month of pregnancy, uh, we had a cousin in Oklahoma City, but uh, grew up pretty much uh, kindergarten through high school here uh, in the Kansas City region in the very northeast tip of Johnson County. And I went to medical school um, at uh, KU and did my specialty training in preventive medicine public health at Michigan. And so um, been a health officer, health director, or in public health in Michigan, um, Maryland, and then back here for 22 years now uh, as the Kansas City Health Department director, and I like to add head coach. There you go. Explain to people what you mean by that, head coach. Well, um, part of the job is recruiting staff, keeping the staff, coaching them, preparing. Um, so I really see my job in regards to uh, of the health department of coaching. Um, uh, another title that I'll get to a little later in the talk is what we call the chief health strategist and catalyst for community transformation. And so um, uh, that's another title that uh, uh, I use sometimes. Um, and then the other thing is, um, you know, I've, I've from as far back as I can remember, probably four years old, uh, we attended uh, Methodist Church before they became United Methodist Church, uh, uh, and I was uh, in a United Methodist Church for uh, 55, 60 years, and I'm now a member of Pine Ridge uh, Presbyterian Church USA um, right now. Uh, my son and daughter-in-law uh, go there, and uh, we're enjoying that congregation. Uh, Pastor Jim Gordon. Yes. 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 I know Jim. Yes. When I was in, I went to high school in Park Hill and the best oh. man at my wedding in 19, uh, which, uh, yeah, my, uh, was uh, Brent Henderson. His dad was the pastor of Pine Ridge back in, when I was in high school in the seventies. Wow. 
So anyway, yeah, my, yeah. my, uh, my son and daughter graduated from Park Hill South. So, okay. All right. Yeah. Well, great. Yeah. So I was intrigued with your talk that you did to our shepherds helping shepherds group because of things that you said, like public health is a justice issue. And for me, justice is a spiritual issue, you know? And so that's, that, that really intrigued me. So I know you, you've put together a, a presentation that I would like you to give, and then I would want to just ask questions out of that presentation as we uh, move forward in this podcast. So is the slide showing now? I got it. Okay. Public Health and Spirituality Podcast. Uh, yes. Um, so if folks uh, do, oh, my slides aren't forwarding, though, for some reason. Let's see if it's going to, there we are. Okay. So I'll back up for a second. Uh, my Twitter handle is down there. Um, I uh, put out lots of interesting information on different issues, uh, probably some that the audience will agree with and some that you won't. Um, but I look at it as anytime I hear a talk or a sermon or whatever, if I agree with everything that's said and would have probably guessed that on a multiple choice test, then it didn't really challenge me to grow. I like to hear things that they bother me and, and I don't sleep well that night. And I've got to talk with some other folks about it because to me, that's how we, you know, uh, wrestle with God sometimes is we, we, we need that kind of challenge. So hopefully I will say some things that will push people a little bit um, and uh, I'm doing that on purpose. And usually I believe most of what I'm sharing, but sometimes I'm still floating with the idea. <laughs> yeah, I, I understand that. So why do we exist? Well, the reason government exists is to solve problems collectively that we cannot solve individually. And as a health department, we exist because collective actions needed to assure conditions and where our residents and visitors can be healthy. Um, in the wisdom of Pooh, Piglet's asking, but how will we know if a pandemic guideline works? Pooh answers, the world will think we overreacted. So even when we're right, everyone thinks we're wrong? Welcome to public health, said Pooh, and Piglet <laughs> understood. Oh. Uh, a little self-credentialing for our department. Um, uh, we are nationally recognized. Uh, we are actually the only health department to have received the National Association of City and County Health Department's uh, Local Health Department of the Year Award more than once. Uh, we've led our community to the Robert Wood Johnson Culture Health Prize, which is very challenging. And we uh, were one of the first uh, uh, 15 or so dozen local health departments to become reaccredited under our national standards. That uh, And these public health accreditation standards not only are applying to state, local, tribal, and territorial health departments, but we have two military bases that have been able to reach those standards, and we have a foreign nation that's uh, pursuing to meet those guidelines. 
this is kind of an interesting scatter plot um, of showing a survey that was done last year of the thousand local health departments. 740 of them responded, and the question they were asked was, list three health departments that you look to or follow with respect to new public health programs, evidence-based practices, and policies intended to improve public health. And you can see that Seattle King County up in the Northwest was number one, Harris County number two, New York City number three, but we were tied basically with Boston uh, as number four and five. And these other health departments have somewhere between four and 50 times our budgets. Um, so we're pretty proud of our staff. And that's part of that head coach kind of thing that right. we've got a pretty winning record as a department. Excellent. When I think about public health and spirituality and the shared values, I think most of us probably believe that everybody has a story. And we believe in the potential of transformation, not just at an individual level or a community level, but at society at large. Um, some of us might be aware that power is the product of relationships and we get as much justice as we have the power to compel. Mm. So back um, now, you know, 30 plus years ago, the Institute of Medicine, which is a nonpartisan scientific body created by Congress, defined public health as what we as a society do collectively through organized actions to ensure the conditions in which all people can be healthy. So everybody on this call, I am deputizing as public health people because we are part of a society that need to work together to make everybody whole and healthy. Excellent. A picture can be worth 10,000 words. And in this picture, you'll see the woman in the yellow dress representing this chief health strategist and catalyst who's responsible to facilitate community transformation. And we do that through trying to influence funding, whether that's federal, state, and local governmental funding or private foundations. We also partner with businesses. We support social movements. And in fact, the biggest increases in life expectancy and quality of life in this country have occurred through social movements. And this year, we are celebrating a social movement that occurred 100 years ago that may have had more impact on how long we live than any other social movement. And you can probably guess what that is, but that's women getting the right to vote. We probably wouldn't have gotten child labor laws, clean indoor air laws, all the different kinds of OSHA protections and other things without women being involved in these decisions. To the right, you will see a river. And uh, there's a medical sociologist back in 1971 from New Zealand that created the river parable in public health. So just like we have various parables in the Bible um, and in our sacred texts, uh, we have what we call the river parable. And in the river parable, um, you can see the person down at the bottom here in red with the net. Um, and if you were walking along and you saw people drowning and you had the ability to pull one or two out, you'd try to do that. But eventually, if you don't go upstream and figure out why are all these people falling in, realizing that half of them are drowning before they get to your point. So building more hospitals downstream 
doesn't actually improve the health of our community. You have to move upstream and work with the schools, work with neighborhood associations, work with congregations to keep people from falling in to begin with or help them get out before they get into trouble. And ultimately, we in public health believe that there is environmental and social justice and health equity that can be achieved if we work together. Excellent. Okay. So, scared to talk politics at work or at church. Um, And this comes from Brian McLaren. I I love him as an author. Um, What do you mean by politics? Well, if we define politics as dirty, partisan, divisive, dishonest, power-grabbing attempts to make us winners and them losers, then no, we shouldn't be talking about that in our congregations or our workplaces or uh, any place. When I was growing up, my dad used to say, son, there's three things you don't talk about in polite conversation, sex, politics, religion. And because (laughs) I grew up primarily in white privilege, we didn't have a lot of minorities, Uh, But if I had, uh, and I got more experience when I was on a football scholarship in college, but um, he would have added race to that too. But um, those are things that we don't talk about very well. Why? Because we need to really think of politics is the way groups of people organize their lives together. And every congregation has politics. Hopefully it's not the politics on the left, but it's the politics on the right. Um, Every group or body that you consider yourself a member to, um, the group is there to organize our lives more effectively together and to support each other. A second problem is often people say, well, governmental public health isn't or shouldn't be political. Well, we shouldn't be partisan but that's different than being political. And I'll show you some of why. Now, when I put on my theological hat um, that I have to do, and as I mentioned, my dad said, don't talk about uh, sex, politics, or religion. Well, I have to do that every day (laughs) in public health. And if we think about our worldview, our mental model, or you could put our sacred text, whatever major uh, religion you might be, Um, There is an axis of what we call justice, and on the far left, it's punishment and retribution. On the right, it's contributive, distributive justice, social justice. It's, you know, issues around uh, loans and returning land to folks and not charging interest rates and uh, grace and forgiveness, all those things that are on the right side of that. Mm -hmm. And In our sacred texts and all of our major religions, there are stories and issues on this whole continuum. And in fact, in our country right now, often when you say the word justice, people unconsciously put the word criminal in front of that and they think of criminal justice, and they're only thinking about those issues on the left. And what we actually find out is when stories like A number of years ago, when the five Amish girls were killed in Pennsylvania, the national media didn't know how to cover the story because they couldn't get anybody yelling for justice and retribution. Um, And they didn't really know even how to handle the fact that the Amish 
were reaching out to the family of the person who had committed the uh, acts of killing the girls to make sure that they were all right. Now, every religious group has its issues and problems, and, you know, there's shunning. There's, I'm not holding up any one religious group as better than another, but they do practice what they preach in regards to um, moving towards the right more. And I believe in most of our religious traditions and leaderships, uh, there's been the call, whether it's Jesus, Gandhi, Martin Luther King, et cetera, to pull us to the right from the left. Mm -hmm. There also is the up and down axis of power and influence. Do we do it through nonviolent persuasion or do we use force, intimidation, and threats? And again, both of those types of approaches are on a continuum in our sacred texts. Um, In fact, it's interesting that um, Rabbi Michael Lerner will talk about The reason that we have some of these things, and we have basically two voices in our sacred texts, we have the voice of God, and then we have the voice of man who misunderstands the voice of God in his pain and suffering. But both of those stories are there as a mirror so that when we're guilty of the same thing, we can see that others were too. Um, And if you look at this then, well, where does civilization tend to lie? whether it's Pharaoh with Egypt, Caesar with Rome, the uh, British Empire, the American Empire, um, we are down in this bottom left quadrant by and large. And if you challenge me and say, well, give me some facts for that. Well, we lock up more people than any other country in the world. We spend more on the military than uh, really almost every other country in the top eight or so that are our allies um, combined. We also um, uh, spend more on local law enforcement than any other country in the world. So if you think about it, um, but our religious spiritual leaders seem to be pulling us to the upper right quadrant. And in fact, if you think about it, back in around 1970, I would say that the U.S. probably was about here in that quadrant, but it seems like we've been backsliding. Um, Now, you don't have to stay that way. You can have transformation. Let's look at the country of Japan. So Japan used to be an empire and a military power. Um, But guess what? They have shifted upwards. And in fact, from a life expectancy standpoint, the Japanese live the longest. There are several European nations. And if you look at countries based on this access, you can almost map out every country on life expectancy and where they are on this gradient of justice and retribution and violence and force and intimidation and uh, contributive grace and nonviolent persuasion. Mm. So as Dr. Cornell West says, justice is what love looks like in public. Now, looking at our data, and I apologize, I uh, didn't have my glasses on, I guess, when I pulled up this slide. Uh, the data I has a quick, it, I make a quick comment. Yeah, uh, jump, jump in there. Well, me. just on that last slide, um, I, when I went to seminary, I studied 
with uh, a guy named Doc, Dr. William Estep, who was one of the foremost uh, theologians, histo- historic theologians when it came to the Anabaptist movement, which, yes. which is the, the pacifist movement, right? Yes. And so John Howard Yoder, the politics of Jesus is, you know, some of these, uh, this flow of the Mennonite pacifist tradition has always been a strong influence in my own life. I always say I've always leaned toward pacifism, nonviolence, forgive, you know, love your enemy, all of those kind of things that you're talking about there. I just wanted to inject that really quickly. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's challenging. And, um, um, and and I'll, I'll tie that in a little bit later here. Um, the restorative justice movement is fascinating to me. Oh, definitely. So, yeah. So th- this shows our 320 square miles in four different counties, the footprint of Kansas City, Missouri. Um, and, and I was mentioning I didn't have my glasses on, so I pulled up an older slide. So this is just up through 2017 in data. But you can see that we've got, you know, a – 15, almost 16-year life expectancy difference now between our longest and shortest life expectancy zip code. And the areas where the redlining, blockbusting, and racial practices that created some of our structural racism, uh, you can see that line down through here. Now, we have had one switch over where 64109 um, is no longer in the lowest life expectancy zip codes, but a lot of that actually is from gentrification and folks that could no longer afford to live in that zip code have now moved over to 64129, Um, but you can see uh, the huge difference. Mm. And this is um, along a whole lot of different lines. Mm -hmm. Um, When we take this data and we look at the longest and shortest life expectancy zip codes, you can see in the pink, this is um, how many folks were dying in those shortest life expectancy zip codes versus in the longest life expectancy zip codes. And you'll see that for almost every condition, it's about twice as high, um, with the exception of homicides, where it's 15 to 20 times as high. Mm. And um, this is important because what we are learning is that um, these are not actually the causes of death. In fact, if you think about um, people dying, ultimately they die because they stop breathing or their heart stops beating, right? But if that was what we had on the death certificate, that wouldn't be very useful. Um, these conditions that we call cancer, heart disease, and so forth are really the symptoms of how people die, not the causes. They're not the root causes. Mm -hmm. The root causes are these allostatic load or toxic stresses, these conditions that mess up our body's biology so that our blood pressure gets out of control or our cholesterol or our diabetes with our hemoglobin A1C, et cetera. And so what we don't realize is that um, these are actually being caused by other root causes that we sometimes ignore. Mm. The science is becoming more and more clear. Dr. Block, a former president of the American Academy of Pediatrics, talks about childhood adverse experiences as one of the greatest unaddressed public health threats of our time. And just to show you the data, 
So across the nation, about one out of three of us come up with no ACEs. About half of us, one to three adverse childhood experiences. And let me flip forward. The adverse childhood experiences that are most often identified and researched are these 10 over here to the right that you can see. Yeah, so for um, my listeners, I, I just uh, haven't released this yet, but I just did an interview with Dr. Michelle Kylo, who uh, went through this. This is basically a trauma analysis um, right. childhood, and she, she walked us through some of this, and uh, this is excellent. Thank you for sharing this, yeah. And, and so what we know then, and then there's about one out of six Americans that are in this four to 10 category. But look at what happens if we compare these various conditions and risk factors across the ACEs experience. And so you can see that a person likely to become addicted to nicotine and tobacco and smoking, they're 2.7 times as likely to end up in that situation if they grew up with seven or more ACEs versus none. Alcoholic, one, 11 times as high risk. IV drug abuse, 16 times. Having a heart attack, 2.3 times. Attempting suicide, 19 times more likely. Ooh. And so wow. you, you can't treat your way out of this problem. We've got to impact the ACEs. Um, and in fact, when we look at these conditions of death that are put on death certificates or that we think about in regards to hopelessness and anxiety, if we cured and took the ACEs problem out of that, look at how much of this pie disappears. It is mm. huge. Wow. Now, in Kansas City, Missouri, um, several years ago, uh, Galia published the American Journal of Public Health these numbers on the number of people dying each year in the United States because they didn't graduate from high school and the stresses and challenges that occur from that because of our racial segregation practices in the past and present, because of low social support. And this is an interesting uh, measure because this gets at, do you, are you part of a regular group where if somebody is in trouble in that group or needs help, you would reach out and help them and do, mm -hmm. and vice versa. If you need help, they will support you. And that's a huge predictor on whether you live longer or not, on whether you have that identification. In fact, I actually think that women are better at this than men, and part of the reason that women live longer in, than men do in this country is that they're better at social support with each other. Mm. Individual poverty is a big factor. Income inequality actually turns out to be one of the best predictors of the differences in life expectancy between various countries, as well as states in this country. Mm. And then even if you don't have any of these five, if you live in a community that has high levels of poverty, it impacts your health. And the bottom line is that somewhere between one out of two and one out of three of our deaths every year are due to some combination of these six factors. And you can see in the upper right, if the doctor just tries to bail out the bo boat but hasn't addressed these social factors, um, it's kind of a hopeless cause. Mm -hmm. 
So the World Health Organization puts out what I think is a moral or spiritual challenge. Why treat people without changing what makes them sick? Mm. We are not primarily having a COVID outbreak. We have a health inequity and health injustice outbreak that is manifested and brought to light through COVID. So if we think about our county health rankings that were developed by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation contracting with the University of Wisconsin, and you'll see that policies and programs impact health factors and income impact health outcomes. Those health outcomes are length and quality of life. Notice so that it's not programs and policies, it's policies first and then programs. And then you can see the relative importance of these different factors. Well, um, the, the white is what the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation and the County Health Rankings is based on. So their formula looks at 30% of the impact is health behaviors, 20% on clinical care, 50% on social economic factors, I mean 40%, and 10% on physical environment. But the research since they developed this in 2014 and the trend that it's going on, I actually believe that health behaviors is a little less than 30%. It's very clear that clinical care is actually less important than the 20%, but the social economic factors are probably at least 50%. And we're also seeing that the housing and environmental issues are increasing in their um, impact on our health. Uh, living close to a interstate uh, reduces your life expectancy because of the air pollution off the interstate. Mm. So as we think about this river parable, and we move from clinical care and medical interventions to addressing individual social needs. But when we move far enough upstream to really prevent deaths, we have to improve community conditions and it's all about laws, policies, regulations that create uh, healthy or unhealthy community conditions. And so I mentioned this river parable. Growing up in this country or being in this country very long, most of us know the medical model of unhealthy behaviors lead to disease and injury and can lead to death. But again, um, whether it's a five-year-old or if you've had quality improvement of what we call the five whys when you ask a question, you know, a five-year-old asks you a question and you'll give the answer and then they'll say, but why? But why? And you have to go deeper. And then, but why? And you have to go deeper. And usually by the time you get to like five whys, you either get to the real answer and they're satisfied or you give up and you tell them you don't know right. or, or try to distract them to something else. Uh, but the idea is, why are people dying? Well, because of disease injury. Why is that? Because of unhealthy behaviors. But why is that? That moves you up to what we call the social, ecological, or societal level of this river parable. And that's where our biased beliefs, our isms, racism, classism, any way that we are spiritually, theologically, pitted against others, so it's tribalism, it's us against them. Whenever that happens, it leads to bad policies and practices that put our communities on life support in many parts of the city. 
So yeah, we have emergency rooms to prevent death. We have clinics for disease. We have health education. But that's not enough. And we spend twice as much per person as any other country in the world. And yet we've got 40 more. There's over 45 other countries now that live longer than we do. Mm. Can you imagine if we were 45th in medal count in the Olympics, what an outcry there would be? Right. Uh, but, but most people don't even know that, that we're 45th in life expectancy. Mm. So we need more power and leadership. And part of that is spiritual and religious and community leadership. We've got to come together on policies. And ultimately, we have to change the narrative. And I would argue that the biggest challenge, but also some of the best work on how to reframe or look at how we look at ourselves are in our sacred texts and in our spiritual and religious traditions. But we've got to move towards inclusion and sustainability. We've got to work at health and all policies and creating more resilient, transformed communities. Ultimately, these are the drivers of change. So another visualization of this is you can look at the tree on the left, and to be honest, you can throw as much money as you want of all these conditions, including COVID, and you're not going to make very good impact, which is part of our challenge in this, this country right now, if you don't address the problems of unhealthy roots and an unhealthy trunk. And the tree on the right, where those are addressed, those conditions are much easier to manage. And you can see as you move from um, this type of a situation over here with income inequality and discrimination and institutional racism, um, what I would call um, diseases of the spirit, um, then we move to the right and we've got sense of community social network, social support, participation, leadership, um, all these quality issues, if these roots are there, people will be healthier. And then COVID, as an example, wouldn't have been like it was in this country and still is. Hmm. So public health as a social justice policy changing enterprise. Justice comes from truth plus power. So we can bring the research and the data, although sometimes now what is truth and it's even challenged, but it's community organizing that can bring the power. When we bring these groups together, then we can create justice. And we do that often through social movements. So many of you have heard about the importance of, you know, helping somebody that's hungry and feeding them. Um, but I can tell you that if you only feed people or even if you teach them how to fish instead of just giving them a fish, but if they don't have access to healthy fishing places, um, then it doesn't work. So we've got to work through the whole process of supporting those in need, but educating them, but also changing the conditions where they can have hope and succeed. So if we think about social political influencers of health, there are all these kinds of conditions from affordable housing, quality education. 
we are one of the only countries, and one of the reasons we continue to fall behind on education compared to other developed nations is we fund our public schools based on local taxpayer um, uh, issues, particularly property tax. And so the communities that we've destroyed through redlining and blockbusting don't have the resources to have a good educational system. And so we're falling further and further behind. Um, all these things are important. Why? Because they end up causing unhealthy behaviors and psychosocial stress, that toxic stress. And that creates inequities and injustices in the distribution of disease, illness, and well-being. We create more illness in this country than other developed countries do that we then have to try to treat our way out of instead of slowing down the creation of it. Ultimately, these social political influencers of health come from power and wealth imbalances. And spiritually, we have to be aware of how stacked these power systems are and how we become engaged in trying to balance that out. Citizens United, I think, is a great example where in many ways in this country, we don't have one person, one vote. It's one dollar, one vote um, on a lot of our policies. And ultimately, our social structures, our 400 years of racism, class oppression, and gender discrimination um, are running this whole system. So if we think about impacts on health, yes, counseling and education matters. People need to uh, have safer sex and eat and be physically active. Um, those don't have as big of impact because people have to do them all the time and there are a lot of pressures not to do them. Clinical interventions matter. Um, as we go down this period uh, pyramid, it makes uh, a stronger impact. And you'll see, yes, if people can afford their blood pressure medication, they're not having side effects, they have their life organized well enough to remember to take their blood pressure medication even though they don't have symptoms, as you move down this pyramid, you'll see immunizations, things that they only have to do once every 10 years or once every year um, have longer lasting effects. But ultimately, we actually have to change the context where people's default to the healthy decision. So that's fluoridation of water or smoke-free laws or getting rid of trans fats and foods making sure there's iodine in, in food so that people don't have problems from not having iodine. But ultimately, the social economic factors, and this is actually coming from Dr. Frieden, New York City Health Commissioner, when he first developed this, was head of CDC for a while, um, and you'll see it kind of stopped there. I've added this bottom part to the pyramid which is contributive, distributive social justice, that our religious, moral, spiritual teachings and beliefs then influence all of these other things up the pyramid. Some of you may have seen this before, the difference between equality, and I sometimes tell my staff, if I was gonna treat everybody equally, I would mandate that they all have to wear size nine shoes. <laughs> um, but equity, if you look over here, is making sure everybody can see over the fence. But what's really interesting, when you have deep listening and conversations, uh, the first time I saw this slide, they were actually all white people. There wasn't even diversity <laughs> in, the, in the group. Uh, 
But another time I was talking with people and they said, no, you still miss it, doctor. Why are they not in the stands? Now, this was pre-COVID, but uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> so we have a lot of definitions, and I'll, I'll just simply say that I don't use the term health disparities anymore other than to say why I don't use it, because I think it's too value neutral. It doesn't really identify these differences in population health and mortality rates that are systemic pattern, unfair, unjust, are actionable as opposed to people thinking, well, it's just random or it's caused by the person that became ill. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, health equity is a fair, just distribution of social resources. John Rawls, in his Theory of Justice treatise, talks about one of the ways to know whether you have a just society is would you be willing to take a random chance of being born into any family in that society? and feel like you had a fair shake to succeed. And if you don't, you don't have a just society. We have huge problems with COVID on health equity and our people of color are being harmed at much higher rates, multiple reasons. One of the reasons is that who's being exposed? Who's that essential worker particularly workers that are working in situations where they don't have paid sick leave and they have to risk their own lives as well as their co-workers' lives because if they didn't go to work, they could end up evicted or not being able to feed their family. Joshua Sharfstein um, in John Hopson's School of Public Health, a professor there, former health commissioner for Baltimore City and state health department director in Maryland, deputy director in the FDA, who I think is being strongly considered to head the FDA under the new administration, put out this really interesting public health crisis survival guide. And the point of this is not only do you have to recognize that you're in a crisis, which we should have recognized back in December of last year, and took this seriously and communicated it more effectively and managed it differently than we did. Every other public health infectious disease outbreak or crisis has been managed by the CDC without interference from the White House, where the CDC then kept the Secretary of Health and Human Services aware so that they could keep the cabinet aware of what the issues were. But the CDC then worked with state and the larger Metro Health Departments to figure out what's the best approach so we could then advise our mayors and governors on what to do instead of the White House politicizing this, unfortunately, and creating this, well, it's mostly in the blue states, so we're going to let it run rampant, and then we can blame the blue state governors. And this has created a real crisis for us as a country because uh, the governors are getting stuff before the state health departments are even aware of something, and so instead of the where the expertise is, um, they're ending up making decisions without uh, public health knowledge or expertise. I like to think about honoring the dead from COVID by working to change the systems to prevent this magnitude of injustices in the next COVID wave and future communicable disease outbreaks. We will have more. Um, When SARS hit in 2003 in Toronto, um, 
we now had four times as many international travelers moving around um, last year than we had in 2003 and four. We are within the incubation period of every infectious disease from anywhere in the world. You know, it used to be when Ebola broke out in a African village, the villagers couldn't get to the next village because they would be too sick um, and it didn't spread. Now with, um, you know, mopeds and various types of transportation everywhere, and now with air travel, uh, we can bring any disease in the world here uh, before we know it. And we've got to build systems to be able to manage that kind of disease outbreak. I talked a little bit about paid sick leave. Here's a spiritual moral crisis. There are 159 other countries that have mandatory paid sick leave, um, and we don't. And this shows a map. Um, you know, you look at this, all of Europe, um, every developed country, um, with the exception of India um, and South Korea, have paid sick leave. And look at all those others that aren't really developed that do. So Martin Luther King, Dr. King, talks about power as the ability to achieve a purpose. Now, where the spirit comes in is whether or not that's good or bad purpose depends on, on that. And if you think about power, you think about the ability to act, produce an effect. You think about impacting decision makers, developing relationships, and consciously shifting the narrative. And so there are four faces of power. This grassrootspolicy.org reference at the bottom is a very useful, I think about a 16-page document that can give you more detail. But we can organize around a, a various issues. So let's say, you know, our spirit and our interpretation of our sacred text say that, you know, these 460% uh, interest rates that people are paying under payday loans is immoral and uh, is against our uh, understanding of, of God's intent for the world. We can organize around that issue, and we either are successful or not. It takes a lot of energy. We're now building more and more what we call political infrastructure building, where groups of like-minded folks come together um, I may not be able to accomplish my issue alone, but I can help you do yours, and then you'll turn around and help me get mine done. So we're building those types of systems. We have to change the narrative, and we have to watch out for the power of coercion to maintain the status quo. And right now in Missouri and in Kansas, the state level preempts locals from doing a lot of things that would help their citizens. Uh, we've had lots of actions with community organizing, uh, more squared. I won't go into a lot of detail of those spiritual issues. I do want to kind of show this slide of the riskiest behaviors with coronavirus. But it turns out that some of us in white privilege, we can afford to stay in low-risk categories. But a lot of our people of color and low-income folks can't. They've got to work in these fields where they have some level of exposure, and many of them are even working in the highest risk settings, and their employers weren't protecting them before. In fact, we have a military contractor that 
claims that their employees are exempt under the federal law, and technically they are, but they're not providing them with masks and not controlling the COVID in their facility. Um, And that's a real problem and challenge right now. You'll notice that church is over here in high risk unless we do the right things in the social distancing. So we've got churches that are being very careful right now. You know, they've even put up plexiglass up there um, around the uh, pulpit so that the minister can go ahead and speak without a mask on, but won't infect the folks uh, out in the um, pews. Um, Singing is particularly damaging because when you sing, the virus goes two to three times as far as when you're speaking in normal voices. So you've got to create extra distances. But there are ways, and we are having safer worship in groups, but uh, there's challenges there. Uh, With that, um, I'm going to stop here and kind of see, Fred, where you are. Um, If there is interest, I can go into some of my um, uh, scriptural and and spiritual way of looking at some of these public health challenges, um, or we can do that at another time. Thank you. That's that's some incredible information. Um, I I have two things that are running through my head right now for people who are listening and tuning in one is the the spirituality of of the justice issue and then two it's there can also seem to be such an overwhelming uh like it's hard to get a feel for how can one person help make a difference right so the first one is more the spiritual side to this equation. And then the second one is more, how can, how can me as an individual? And, and so some of the audience that's listening is, is from an evangelical background and, and depending on your church tradition, um, one of the things that evangelicals have emphasized is sort of this, uh, individual Jesus can save you from, you know, from hell and bring you into eternity. And, and I, I don't think that that's where a lot of, of churches have been in, in today's world where they're, they just kind of emphasize Jesus as an insurance policy. But, but I do think that there's a, there's a tendency for American Christians in general, let's not even talk about evangelicals to emphasize more of an individual type of spirituality versus a community type of spirituality. And when I think of the, like say, for example, our, our, Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, and I think about the prophets of the Hebrew Bible, the two things that they challenge people on, would one would be idolatry, but the second one would be what we might call social justice issues. Or And, and sometimes I've even heard people don't like that term because they just think we're talking about socialism. And then I say, well, let's talk about kingdom justice issues. Then, you know, just uh, because... They the the prophets railed against a corrupt king who was oppressing the poor or who was oppressing or marginalizing people and not being mindful of the immigrant, the stranger, the refugee, the 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 widow, the orphan, those that are at the margins and are very vulnerable. And and basically what you've been talking about here in my mind is you've been identifying through a health 
public health, the health and the death ratios of people in, in these marginalized or, or poverty-oriented communities are at risk, or at greater risk. And that is a social justice, that's a biblical justice issue in my mind. And I think you're, you're right on target with bringing this out as a, even a spiritual justice issue. Uh, so yeah. those are some thoughts, and I, I kind of want to bring that uh, the audience into my, you know, somebody might be challenging, well, why is this a spiritual issue? You know, I, I think it is at the core of, of maybe what Jesus talked about and when he picked up on the prophetic tradition of, of the, the marginalized, you know, the, the, those that are hungry and the naked and the, you know, on, on the stranger he talked about that in Matthew 25. One of the challenges is, um, I think, in my in my faith journey, um, I am called to do things, whether or not the results of those things even become apparent in my lifetime. Um, you know, there were folks that were working to get Nelson Mandela out of jail um, that died before that happened. Um, and, and I think, you know, we, we can sometimes get into so much of immediate need for reinforcement or gratification that if, you know, and, and where we're doing charity, um, it's a little easier to see that because we see the relief or the face of somebody who um, is hungry and needs to be fed. Um, it is more difficult and more challenging to collectively work as a group on something that needs to be changed. Um, and let, let me actually see if I've... Uh, um, so I, I'm going to share this uh, again. It's a quote from John Dominic Cross. And my point once again is not that those ancient people told literal stories that we are now smart enough to take symbolically, but that they told them symbolically and we are now dumb enough sometimes to take them literally. Um, and you'll see there on the right where, uh, you know, he's talking about, uh, um, you know, if the truth is too technologically advanced, how do we get this across? And what I find is if we look at advanced agrarian societies when our sacred texts were written, this uh, kind of pyramid here, um, but you'll notice that it's lopped off. And at the top, you've got the ruler, um, you've got the governing class, you've got the retainer priests, and then you've got the peasants, and those peasants that still had their land uh, were up here. But once you start losing your land, once through predatory lending and other things, just like we've had on uh, foreclosures and that, um, and it's interesting that Jesus spends 99% of his time, and so do the prophets in the Old Testament or the Tanakh Hebrew Bible, they're talking about these folks down here. Um, and why? Because they have shorter life expectancies. Once you fall into these categories, you're less likely to live very long. 
There's another representation of this, which kind of differentiates how urban populations and rural populations are occurring. But you can see tremendous similarities between our class and social structures in this country um, and what Jesus was talking about and what the Old Testament prophets were talking about. You know, so, I mean, like when Jesus quoted Isaiah, this is the favorable year of the Lord. Yes. We're dealing with this issue you're talking about right now, land and Jubilee and the, you know, trying to reset the scales so that the upper echelon of the wealthy, which would have been a fraction of the population that, of that chart you just showed compared to the masses of people, very yeah, few people can even read and write. Uh, yeah, in the and, biblical and, days, you know. And when Jesus is speaking um, and reading from Isaiah there, uh, that's the story told in Luke, I think it's the fourth chapter around 16 or 18 verses. Um, but he's reading preferentially. So he's actually reading from two different sections in Isaiah, and he skips some of the violent parts. Mm-hmm, he does. Um, you know, and, and, you know, constantly in the <laughs> Sermon on the Mount, he is saying, you've heard it said, but I raise the bar and tell mm-hmm. you this is what I expect. And so, yeah, we're constantly getting challenged. And, and you can see, you know, everybody's familiar with Micah 6, 8 about uh, justice and not understanding justice as criminal justice, but understanding justice as this distributive, contributive justice and the kindness and mercy and walking humbly with God. Um, and then you go to Matthew 23, 23, and Jesus is saying the same thing according to the Gospel of Matthew. Mm-hmm. Um, exactly. If we look at these biblical themes of justice, um, I love this uh, from Walter Brueggemann, that in biblical faith, the doing of justice is the primary expectation of Yahweh. Excellent. And the, Brueggemann's a good uh, Old oh, Testament scholar, definitely. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, I've <laughs> I try to read and read and read, and I probably only read ten percent of his hundreds of books that I, he's written. He's, exactly, he's, he's very prolific. To, and and to be honest, it usually takes me more than one reading of his books to yeah. really fully comprehend. But yeah, this concept of one of the most frequent words um, or concepts in the Old Testament, uh, the uh, Hebrew Bible or Tanakh, is anawim, which is the widows, orphans, and aliens. Um, and then what you also will see then is that if we think about justice, we have contractual justice between individuals. We have distributive justice from society down to individuals. How are the resources of the group shared? But then we also have how do individuals contribute back to society? And different cultures right now in the world that live longer than us focus either more on distributive or contributive, but use some combination of those two to basically create biblical justice. Mm. Mm-hmm. And if you think about it, I'll challenge everybody listening in on this podcast. Find one place in the Bible where God uh, rejects us doing justice because we're not worshiping. 
But there are bunches of places where God rejects our worshiping because we're not doing justice. Mm-hmm. You bet. Yeah, Amos, you've got their uh, take away from me the noise of your <laughs> instruments, right? Because yes, yeah, you're not. Yeah, uh, right. um, and in fact, even with the Micah six eight, mm-hmm. if you go, you know, two two verses before, it's talking about well, you can give all the rivers of oil and you know all these things. Um, that doesn't count if you're not doing justice. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, yeah. um, you know, the cycle of Baal, where we start off with a community where we have that state of blessing. Uh, this comes out of uh, um, uh, Doug, yeah, Doug, no, Fred Kamer's book, um, Doing Faith Justice. And in that book, he actually makes faith justice all one word. Um, and this was published in 1991. Um, so if you start off under blessing, the problem is it's not long before we start to think we're owners. But remember, land isn't owned by owners. God owns the land. Yeah, this is in, uh, this is in the Torah. Right. And you're not to then, forget that you were right. once a sojourner. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, 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 and when we become owners... We then forget the poor. Mm-hmm. Um, we think we build it. Um, and you can't forget the poor and not forgetting God because God's concern is for the poor. Uh, we then end up creating other gods like money or wealth or possessions mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. whatever. This is the idolatry that then leads thing. To, that leads to our self-destruction. Yes. Um, the Which, prophets come forward <laughs> to remind us of our error, and what do we do? We kill them. Right. <laughs> you know, we silence them in some way, and mm-hmm. sometimes we actually violently kill them. Mm-hmm. Maybe then we wake up and cry out for deliverance, and then we're restored to we community. Go. But so that is- cycle goes on and on and on. And that's fascinating to me. Like, so like I had my people know about my meltdown and how addiction, you know, that this, when you talk about the other gods being money or, uh, but addiction functions almost like another God in our lives. And then it brings mm-hmm. us to destruction. And then we can, then we have this process of recovery that we come out of. And, but it works at a community level as well, I think. And that's, that's really powerful. Excellent. That is, that is an excellent little picture of the cycle of what you see in the Hebrew Bible, for sure. And then if we think about it another way, let's, let's talk about anthropology and archaeology. So we know that we've kind of started out as hunters and gatherers. We became nomadic herders once we domesticated some animals. We then figured out how to plant crops and grow, became agriculturalists. We then evolved into city dwellers and empire dwellers. Um, And with each of these levels of ascent of, quote, civilization, we also lose something. And if you think about those first 11 books of Genesis, hunter and gatherer in Genesis 1 and 2, 
moving towards nomadic herders and shame and fear under the Genesis 3. This is all from Brian McLaren. Um, Cain and Abel story, agriculturists and murder. People sometimes forget that the first time the word sin is used in the Bible isn't until Cain and Abel with violence. Sin isn't mentioned before that. We assume that some of those things might be sinful that are going on, but it's not identified as sin until murder um, with Cain and Abel. And I think that part of the power of the symbolism of Cain and Abel is it is the contrast of, of nomadic herders of Abel. I've always wondered, why was Abel's gift accepted by God and Cain's was rejected? Well, I think this is really a story about moving from nomadic herders to agriculturalists. And then eventually you get to city dwellers, corruption and violence, God bringing the flood forward to punish for this violence. But this is a story of growing violence and growing oppression and the growing of haves and have-nots um, as wealth starts to accumulate. And then you have the Tower of Babel. And to me, the story of Pentecost is the reversal of the Tower of Babel. Right. Because, Definitely. you know, it, you've got the Tower of Babel where we can't talk to each other because we're all speaking different languages. And then at Pentecost, all of a sudden, we can understand each other. Um, so, yeah, I think there's some That's interesting good. Hey, things. stick on that just a minute. Okay. Because the Cain and uh, one of the things I – Found so the the word able is the word hevel that's used in Ecclesiastes, which is translated sometimes vanity or breath or emptiness or something that's transient. So Cain means acquisition, and so when you try to acquire through force, through power, through violence, it turns to vapor, transient. That's Abel's name, literally. So, so Ecclesiastes is a bit of an extended commentary on, Cain, on the Cain and Abel story. It's actually, I, I talked to uh, uh, Rabbi Ho Johannan Sachs about this uh, on oh. a dinner that we had together. And uh, he, I said, I, you know, so it's, this is, this is fascinating. Yeah. It's good yeah, stuff. We, we forget that these names had meetings. Right. Um, and um, that because the Hebrew language doesn't really differentiate capitals, uh, sometimes it's hard to know, it, was this a personified name of an individual, or was this representing Israel or a mm -hmm. larger group? Um, mm -hmm. and, and yeah, it, it's... Um, Lots of different ways of considering these things. Mm -hmm. this, this last slide I wanted to kind of show up um, in Brian McLaren's book, Everything Must Change. Um, and uh, he actually did a tour here and came to Kansas City and spoke um, at our church and over at the St. Paul's uh, Seminary. Um, but the concept here is that if we are abusing the earth and trying to produce more than the earth can sustain ecologically, and then we don't distribute it in an even way, then the problem becomes those that have are afraid of those that don't wanting to take what they have, and those that don't have enough 
are trying to get and survive. So then you end up spending more on security instead of distributing the resources to people. And the problem is that our religious traditions sometimes drive this system. So, you know, we're all familiar with the prosperity gospel or the concept that uh, if we are, uh, quote, righteous in our belief systems and structures, God will reward us. And so, uh, but the flip of that is if you're wealthy, then you must have been righteous. If you're poor, you must have been sinful. That's a theology that creates challenges to improve things. And then as you were mentioning earlier, if the major part of your religion is you think this is about getting to heaven after you die, and however you get your ticket stamped, um, then it's not about what I think is the third way of looking at this, which is we are our brothers and sisters keeper, and we are uh, entitled and but encouraged by God to help others and not just be interested in ourselves. Right. Um, but I am seeing that we have. Uh, I have a low battery reading. Okay. On yeah. We've got a long way, so I, um, I think we we could end there. Yeah. Uh, I I really appreciate. Um, first of all, your service to Kansas City for the last 22 years, Dr. Archer. I greatly appreciate how you've given your lifetime and energy to health for the city of Kansas City. And then I, I just greatly appreciate how you have integrated your work with public health and your your theology and your your spirituality. And, and we would want to open this up to every religious tradition and to even our friends who are agnostic and atheist. I think that the, the type of spirituality that we we're talking about here is something that, that if we think about spirituality as, as loving our neighbor as a big part of it, then um, there's the, this, this whole, I've, I've, I've found honestly some of my friends that are atheists and agnostic are, are very much into social justice and care about these kinds of issues. And so I appreciate the thought that you put into your theology and spirituality behind all of this. It's very, very excellent. I appreciate it greatly. How can a individual get involved? Get, what's, what are some practical steps that somebody can take to be a part of the solution to all this? Maybe as a closing uh, thought for me, us. Yeah, let me see if I've stopped the screen sharing there. So, um, you know, we've all probably heard the example of you could take a hundred toothpicks and you can break each one individually easily, but if you put the hundred together, we're not strong enough to be able to break that. Um, and so I think the issue is, um, even with the challenges of COVID, we are stronger in groups and we've got to have dialogue. Um, there are groups like More Squared, Metropolitan Organization for Race and Equity, and you can have an individual membership with More Squared, 
or if you're part of a congregation or group, you can join as a group also, um, or you can be kind of working on both. So you may be an individual member, but then you've got a group that you're trying to get to see about joining because collectively we can make a difference by working together that way. And I think that's kind of what we're called to do is make disciples of additional people on understanding what is the kingdom of God and how do we bring that forth more fully right. here and now on earth. On earth, um, yes. Aubrey Hendricks, um, uh, Professor Hendricks, I think at New York Theological um, Seminary, I believe he was, may still be um, Professor of Biblical Interpretation, but he's got a book out on the politics of Jesus. And what I love about it is he basically says, regardless of what you think about Jesus, if 30% of the world claims to be following Jesus, and another 20% revere him as a prophet, maybe he had some leadership qualities. Right. And, 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 and what are those? And so Obrig basically said, well, I'm going to pick seven, and I'm going to write seven chapters about seven of his leadership principles. And to me, these are the ones that I try to integrate in my own public health practice. Treat the needs of the people as holy. Expose the workings of oppression. Give the voiceless a voice. Call the demon by name. Don't get angry um, about how you're being treated. Um, and then the other part of that is to um, not react violently to others. And then the final one is um, walk the walk, don't just talk the talk. Now, the first four I do fairly well and I've been working on pretty hard. Um, I still get angry when I think I'm being mistreated instead of just getting angry over the mistreatment of others. Um, I'm pretty good at not violently reacting to others, but sometimes rhetorically I cross that line. I've got to be careful. Um, and I definitely don't walk the walk enough. <laughs> uh, but, but those seven become, I think, an outstanding way of, you know, picking one of those and working on them for, mm. you know, a few months or a year and see how you do and then move on to another one. But to me, that's what public health is about mm. is – doing those seven basic principles. That's good. One organization, you mentioned uh, More Squared, is that right? Yes. And then the, uh, one I was introduced to last year is the Center for Conflict Resolution, which is a restorative justice group uh, in here in Kansas City that's trying to work in the urban core with families and, and try to head off, you know, violent escalation at the at the family level through, through our school systems. I don't know if you've heard of them or not. Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. No, they, do, they do some good work. Um, um, uh, the, the group of, uh, shepherds, um, um, many of those folks, uh, have been leaders or still are leaders in more squared. So, right. um, yeah. uh, and yeah, I've been 
when Jim Wallace uh, came to town in 2006 or seven, um, that was my first more squared event that I attended because okay. our, our Sunday school class was reading uh, one of Jim Wallace's books and mm -hmm. studying it. And when we heard he was coming to town, we had to go down and right. hear him speak. And then that's where I caught the bug and realized that um, we weren't doing enough on some of these issues. Yeah. Um, yeah. His yeah, Sojourners it, group is, has been doing some great work for several decades now. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate your thought and insight. We could talk on this for hours, I can tell, but uh, I really appreciate your, your heart for public health and how you've integrated that with your faith and your spirituality. So thank you so much. Yeah, and, and all those around me help try to keep me uh, on that path also. <laughs> all right. right. That's right. Thanks. Well, thank you. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in, and we will uh, see you in the future.